This week I was with a friend who is also a PCA pastor and also happens to be uh, preaching through uh, Galatians right now, and we were talking about it uh, together and sharing how much I've enjoyed uh, working through this book together with you. Um, but in the midst of our conversation about Galatians, uh, we both acknowledged, uh, sort of asking one another, hey, have you, have you noticed that your sermon message is basically the same every, every Sunday since you've started in Galatians? And uh, we both thought that. That's one of the challenges of going through Galatians. But there's a reason for that, and that's because in Galatians, Paul has a, a singular focus. And that singular focus is to, to, to dismantle, to, to deconstruct a false gospel of legalism and to do so with the true gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is dogged in his pursuit of doing that very thing. He's going to do it today by taking us to an Old Testament story and showing us that it has uh, an, an, an allegorical, we might even say typological uh, interpretation that will continue to teach us uh, this very lesson. You'll remember uh, that an allegory is a story in which uh, specific people and places and events uh, represent uh, spiritual truths. So you could think of uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, probably the most well-known allegory out there, where in, in Pilgrim's Progress, the people and places and things that happen are, are all meant to teach us uh, spiritual truths about the Christian life. And uh, today, Paul is going to walk us through an allegory to teach us that there are fundamentally two ways of relating to God. And he's going to show us that one is the way of slavery and the other is the way of, of freedom. Well, before we uh, turn to God's word, let's, let's pray and ask for his help today. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, show us the way of freedom today in the Lord Jesus Christ. We acknowledge that by nature we are sinners and we are slaves to sin, but through Christ you have set us free from that bondage. Uh, nevertheless, uh, some of us have submitted ourselves to another kind of slavery, a slavery that consists of uh, self-effort and endless cycle of self-reliance and trying and failure and guilt and trying to make up for it. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would lead us once again to the one who sets us free from all of that, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. And by your spirit, we ask that you would open up your word to us today and teach us all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 21 uh, through the end of the chapter. Let's hear God's word. Tell me. You who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. 
Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as that, at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Probably the most well-known line in the American national anthem is the line, the land of the free and the home of the brave. Uh, It's true, isn't it, that Americans cherish their freedom. Americans are ready to take a stand for it. Give me liberty or give me death, says Patrick Henry. And yet, yet many Americans who love freedom also choose to live like slaves. They choose to live a life of bondage, a life in shackles. And maybe, just maybe, that's you. Maybe you're also thinking, well, how, how can that be? How is that possible? Well, this passage is going to tell us how, and I think we need to examine ourselves in light of what Paul teaches here about slavery and, and true, true freedom in the deepest sense. You remember that the Galatians were people who had lived in a state of terrible bondage. They, they, were, uh, they were religious people, I'm sure. Their religion, or better yet, their religions were religions of performance and ceremonies and rituals and self-effort. Every day they were trying, 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 trying to keep up with the religious rituals, trying to keep up with the regulations. And, and, and every day it was there. It never let up. They woke up and there were the requirements looming over them. And their conscience said, it's not, it's not good enough. You got to keep going. You got to do more. You You've got to do better. More obedience is required. More rituals. And on and on and on it went. Then one day the Apostle Paul appeared. And Paul spoke to these Galatians about about the Lord Jesus Christ. He told them about a Christ who who kept God's law for sinners. He, He told them about a Christ who bore the penalty of the law for sinners. He, he told them about a Christ who was all that they needed in order to have full acceptance and full access with God. And these Galatians believed. They embraced the gospel and they began to experience the liberty of the sons of God. They began to enjoy the freedom of the gospel that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the chains came off. They started to enjoy True freedom. And you'd think, okay, well then, if that's the case, who would ever give that up? 
Who would ever turn away from such wonderfully good news? And yet, that is exactly what the Galatians were doing. False teachers came into Galatia and said, yeah, okay, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is good and and necessary, but but you've got to be circumcised. You've got to perform the rituals. You've got to... Uh, you've got to observe the food laws. You've got to observe the, the days and the weeks and the months and the years. You've, you've got to keep the regulations because only then can you know that you are right with God. And Christianity became for them just like their former paganism. list of rules and a list of endless regulations that they had to follow and observe. Every day the demands were there and there was never any end to it. Because if they wanted to be accepted, if they wanted to really belong, then they had to keep it up and never let up in doing so. And the Galatians, they bought into this lie and they, you see what they did? They chose to live again like slaves, placing themselves under laws that did not belong. Man-made laws that God himself did not command. And as we study Galatians at times, you think, this, this is crazy. What were these Galatians thinking? I mean, Paul himself shared this feeling with the Galatians back in chapter 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Why would you return again to a yoke of slavery when Christ set you free? And yet, dear friends, I wonder if some of you here today have done or are doing the very same thing the Galatians once did. You might just be a modern-day Galatian. Maybe, maybe you've forgotten that Christianity is really about freedom, not slavery. Maybe you've turned faith into an endless list of obligations and rules and and rituals, and and maybe you think your acceptance with God ebbs and flows with the quality of your obedience. If so, dear friends, Galatians is for you. And Paul wants us to remember the freedom of the gospel, the freedom that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. And today he reminds us with a story, with history, Something that really happened. He reminds us of a story that he says can be interpreted or understood allegorically. And then he draws out from that several practical implications. So there's our outline if you're interested in taking notes. In verses 22 and 23, Paul is interested in history. In verses 24 through 27, Paul gives us the allegorical interpretation of that story And then in verses 28 through 31, he draws out some practical applications. So let's begin with the story. He goes back to Genesis. You remember how the story went? God made a covenant with Abraham. Uh, He came to Abraham by grace in Genesis chapter 12. He gave him a promise and he confirmed that promise in Genesis 15, one of the promises he gave them is, I will give to you an offspring, and through your offspring, the nations of the earth will be blessed. But then time went on. Days passed, weeks passed, months passed, and then years passed, but still no son. 
And so Abraham and Sarah decided to take matters into their own hands. It was, it was a piece of human conniving. It was by human reason and human effort. Sarah said to her husband, why don't you take Hagar, my servant, and, and sleep with her? And we will have a, a son and an offspring this way. And they did. And Hagar had a son, Ishmael. And some 14 years later, you know what happened. God remembered his word. He kept his promise. At a time of when it would be least expected and humanly speaking impossible. Abraham, 100 years old, Sarah, 90 years old, and Sarah is with child. And according to God's word of promise, they had a son, Isaac. You see, you see, what, you see what Paul is setting up for us here. That's, that's the history. A son born according to the flesh, born by human reason, born by human effort, Ishmael. And a son born through promise, according to promise, apart from human reason, apart from human effort, but because of the grace of God, Isaac. And then Paul extrapolates from that and says this can all be understood allegorically. And then here's where we get into this somewhat complicated allegory. But what he's saying to us up front is that the story of Ishmael and Isaac, it's history, but it's more. The life of the lives of Ishmael and Isaac preach to us. They preach to us about two fundamentally different ways of relating to God. One represents the way of relating to God by, uh, by works. One represents the way of relating to God by faith. One is the way of slavery and the other freedom. Now, Paul mentions two mothers, Hagar, implicitly Sarah, and these women are two covenants, he says. A, a covenant based on works and a covenant based on grace. So Paul is saying there, there are these two ways here, two ways of relating to God. That's what a covenant is, a way of relating to God. There is a way that seems right according to man. A way that, that conforms to fallen human reason. And it's a legal way. It's a way of performance. It's a way of doing. It's a way of, of thinking that you have the power and the ability to do and perform and accomplish by yourself, unaided by the grace of God. It's a way of self-effort, a way of works, a way of obedience to the law as a way of gaining and maintaining right standing with God. I think that's what Paul is referring to back in verse 21 at the beginning of our passage when he said, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you listen to the law? Do you actually hear what the law of God says to you? Now, you see, Paul is not saying that the law of Moses was ever intended by God to be a way for people to earn their salvation. That, that, that could only be the thought if you rip the law, the revelation of law out of the context in which it was revealed, the context of grace. After all, the, the law of God was, it was bookended by bleeding lambs, the Passover lamb and the whole sacrificial system that came after it. The revelation of the law, it was, it was undergirded by divine 
activity. I have bore you on eagles' wings, says the Lord in Exodus 19. And, and the very heart of the revelation of law summarized in the Ten Commandments is itself prefaced by a word of grace, a word of redemption. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. But Paul's addressing people here who would take the law, who would rip the law out of that context of grace and place themselves under it in order to obtain and maintain right standing with God. People who think, if I keep these rules and regulations and rituals, then I'll, then I'll live, I'll be accepted. If I comply, then everything will be okay. And Paul says, this is the way, this is the way of Hagar and Ishmael. Sinai misunderstood. Sinai distorted into a way of relating to God through self-effort and human works. And, and then here, I think, is here's the real kicker in this passage where Paul just, he lays down the hammer here. If you think about this passage in context, he says all of this, all of this corresponds with present-day Jerusalem. That word corresponds, it's a, it's a military term, and it means to, 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 to march in step with. And so Paul is picturing here Hagar and Ishmael and, and those who would claim but distort Moses and the people of Jerusalem and they are marching together in shackles to drummer law. They are, they are marching and trying to keep in step with the beat of law in order to obtain and maintain right standing with God. He sees all of these people in shackles and they are desperately, desperately trying to earn God's approval. And you know, when we thought about the law already, that the beat never stops, it never lets up. Thankfully, in this this allegory, Paul also points us, that he says there's, there's another way. There's the way of Sarah. Sarah who was barren. Sarah who, you know, humanly speaking, was utterly helpless to ever have a child. It was humanly impossible for her to have a son. And yet she gave birth to a son. It was, it was supernatural. It was, it, was, it was a God thing. It was of the Lord. It was based on God's promise and Paul's point here is that's, that's just a little picture for us. It's a picture of the way of relating to God by grace through faith, relying entirely upon God and his provision. There, there's the way of works and self-reliance, and there's the way of grace and reliance upon God. The way of, the way of self-effort. And the way of faith, the way of do this and perform this and observe this and you'll live. And the way of trusting in the promise of God, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will live. And those, those who live by faith, notice this, uh, in the promise, they belong to a city as well. Uh, we've, got, we've got two women, two sons, two covenants, two cities uh, those who are in line with Sarah and Isaac belong to another Jerusalem. The Jerusalem above, which Paul says, is free. Now, I couldn't, I couldn't resist this because of how much Jerusalem's been in the news this week. So I want to I pause here. I want to think about this um, in relation to some of the things that uh, folks are, are saying about modern-day Jerusalem today. 
I mean, as, as many of you know, um, President Trump this week uh, acknowledged Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and uh, talked about moving the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv uh, to Jerusalem. And let me just say this by way of qualification. What I'm, what I'm tr- hoping to do here is in no way engage in any kind of uh, political talk here from the pulpit. I am not commenting on the rightness or the wrongness of that action of our, our president. Rather, what I want you and I to think about together for a moment is some of the Christian responses that have been made in light of the president's announcement. Uh, many Christians, uh, they, if I could put it this way, they see it, this action of the president, this declaration, as a progressive step forward in the unfolding plan of God for, for the Jewish people. Uh, they see Jerusalem as the, the, uh, the eternal city. I think that language was even used, the eternal city of Israel. What I want to say is there is a problem with that because it misunderstands Old Testament prophecies about Jerusalem and how God fulfills those prophecies. If you look at the prophets, um, what are some of the promises that the prophets made? What are some of the things they saw in reference to Jerusalem in the Old Testament? Let me just mention three things. The prophets saw God's people dwelling in Jerusalem in perfect peace. They saw that day. Uh, They saw a day when God would dwell in Jerusalem with his people, and they saw a day in which... uh, that the nations of the world, Gentile peoples, would flock to Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, and worship the God of Abraham. Now, a lot of Christians look at those promises and they think, okay, well, that must mean that God is going to do that within earthly Jerusalem at some point in the future. But again, I think the problem with that is it's not how the New Testament tells us God fulfills those promises. So just think about some of those, think about those three promises with me. First, God's people will dwell in Jerusalem in uninterrupted peace, perfect peace. Does the New Testament tell us anything about that? Does the New Testament say anything about God's people dwelling within the walls of Jerusalem in perfect peace? Yes, it absolutely does. The Apostle John tells us exactly how that promise is fulfilled in its fullness in Revelation 21. Where John has this this glorious vision of a holy city, a new Jerusalem, he calls it, coming down out of heaven from God to earth. And in verses 10 through 14, he describes this beautiful city with with the 12 tribes of Israel inscribed upon the gates and the 12 apostles forming the foundations of of the walls of this new Jerusalem representing the totality of God's people in the Old and and New Testaments. And and in this this vision, it goes on to describe the dimensions of the city. And we won't even get into the fact that it's a cube and what that means, but he goes on to describe the size of it. And it's enormous, bigger than any city we've ever seen. And in Revelation 22, this vision continues. And and the people of God who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, where do they dwell? Where do they dwell? They dwell in the new Jerusalem, where God reigns, John says, forever and ever. So, according to John, the inspired apostle, 
The promise of God gathering his people to Jerusalem is ultimately fulfilled not in an earthly city in the Middle East, not in present-day Jerusalem, but in the Jerusalem from above which we all wait for. What about, uh, how about this one? God dwelling in his temple among his people. Does the New Testament help us understand how that promise is fulfilled? Again, I think the New Testament tells us that, actually, here, this one's a little bit more complicated, because the New Testament's very clear that this promise is being fulfilled right now. This promise is being fulfilled right now in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it will reach its full reality when our Lord and Savior returns. So again, in the New Testament... Over and over and over again, the church is described in temple terms as the dwelling place of God, the place in which God inhabits the praises of his people. And so just for a couple of examples, Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, talking about the church, listen to these words, in Christ you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Perhaps even, even more direct, 2 Corinthians 6.16. What agreement, excuse me, has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So the church is the place in which this promise of God dwelling in his people is presently being fulfilled. Every time, dear friends, think about what this means for our corporate worship. Every time we gather together as God's people, this is the reality as we come in Jesus' name that God is dwelling in the midst of his people by his spirit. And John tells us that this promise reaches its fullness, reaches its full reality when the new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem from above, comes down. Actually, he, he says there will be no temple structure because everything will be temple. He says the dwelling place of God is with man. He will, he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Revelation 21 verse 3. Just think about one more with me. One more promise of the prophets, the nations gathering at Mount Zion, the nations going to the city of Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Does the New Testament say anything about that? We could have used this for our call to worship this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, 22 through 23, talking to believers gathered for worship in the new covenant era, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all. See what that means? When we gather together for worship, when Jews and Gentiles come together as the people of God in the name of Jesus Christ to worship the Lord, they are the dwelling place of God. They are the temple here on earth and they come by the Spirit to Mount Zion, they join with the courses of heaven. They join with the angels who day and night proclaim God's glory. They meet the judge of all the earth as they come in the name 
of God's Son. So these glorious promises, and there are many more of God's people dwelling in Jerusalem, of of God dwelling in the midst of his people, of the nations gathering around Mount Zion to worship the Lord, they are ultimately fulfilled not in an earthly city, but in the heavenly Jerusalem. Here's what we need to understand, dear friends, as New Testament Christians. Earthly Jerusalem in the Old Testament was a temporary picture, but God is no longer dealing with types and shadows. Instead, the reality today, it's found in the church of Jesus and the full reality of the promise will be realized when our Lord and Savior returns and brings the new Jerusalem with him. Therefore, coming back to some evangelical comments that have been made in light of what Donald Trump announced, President Trump announced, to think these promises refer to earthly Jerusalem actually misses the glorious reality of what God is presently doing in the church today and what he will one day do when Christ returns and ushers in a new heavens and new earth. Or maybe you're thinking, okay, what? I didn't even hear any comments about President Trump's statements. So what, what does this mean in practical terms? Do you ever read the prophets and think, what on earth does this have to do with me? Right? Um, God returning to his temple, uh, his people dwelling in Jerusalem, the nations going to Jerusalem and worship the Lord. What does this have to do with me? Do you see what the New Testament tells you? The New Testament tells you that believer in Jesus, these promises are for you. And they are being fulfilled in your very midst today as you belong to the church of Jesus Christ. And they will one day reach their fullness when our Savior comes for his bride. So the time of the old covenant shadows has ceased. Let's be clear about that. People worship, as Jesus said, neither in Jerusalem nor Samaria, but wherever in the world the Spirit of God is present. And so today, today, we participate in that very reality as we gather at Mount Zion, citizens of the Jerusalem above. That was an aside. So let's get back to the main issue here in Galatia. Uh, Remember the Judaizers, they'd they'd come from earthly Jerusalem with this message. And they're again saying, it's it's not enough for you to have faith in Christ. You've also got to conform, you've got to comply, you've got to obey these rules and regulations. And Paul is saying, dearly, dearly beloved, if you choose that route, you are returning again to bondage. You are choosing slavery over freedom. Now this passage, yeah, I mean, I said it earlier, this allegory, it's complex. Actually, uh, Monday, I I try to dive into some commentaries to prepare. First commentary I open up says, this is one of the most difficult passages in all the New Testament. I thought, oh, great. This is going to be a a long week. Turned out to be a wonderful week studying scripture, which it always is. But this is a complicated passage in many ways. But I hope you see that the allegory at its most basic level is in fact very very simple and very very straightforward two mothers one a slave one free two sons one born of works one born of promise two covenants one based on works one based on grace two cities one bound in slavery and one free 
That's the message that Paul is setting before us. And he's saying by putting yourself under law as a way of getting right and maintaining right standing with God, you are opting for the way of slavery. You're putting yourself under bondage because you think that by obeying these rules and regulations, God is going to accept you and, and love you more, but you are in fact only going to find yourself marching to the endless beat of drummer law. And the demands that will be made of you will never let up. That's the message of this passage, dear friends. And in the closing verses, let's look at some applications quickly here. I think I have four. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, the first, the first one is this. The first application I think Paul draws to our attention is the way that God shows grace to the desolate. Yeah, he's thinking of He's thinking of Sarah. Sarah was barren. She was even beyond the age of childbearing. And, and that would have been an enormous stigma for Sarah. Living during that time, it would have been awful. It would have been humiliating. And, and she undoubtedly felt at times helpless and, and hopeless in the midst of all of that. But God gave her a child. He showed grace to the desolate. And, and Paul is thinking about Sarah. As he's doing that, I can just kind of imagine it this way. Paul's reflecting upon Sarah and he's so immersed in the scriptures that his mind runs to another part of scripture. And he thinks of Isaiah chapter 54 and, and this prophecy that's made by Isaiah. It's about a later time when Jerusalem would be wiped out by the Babylonians. They would be in exile and captivity and while Isaiah is looking, you know, looking forward to that, he's, he's thinking back to Hagar and, and Sarah. One was fertile and one was barren. And, and God chose to save the world through the barren one. He, he chose to show grace to the desolate one. And so Isaiah says, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. See, Isaiah was, he was seeing into the future and he's seeing something fulfilled in the new Jerusalem. He, he's seen millions and millions of sons and daughters being brought into the kingdom of, of God, citizens of the Jerusalem above, as men and women and children put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and are added to the family. And it's all because what undergirds all of that happening? God's grace to the desolate. So maybe you're here today and, and for one reason or another, you, you, you associate with Sarah. You feel like a desolate one. You feel like your life is bleak and utterly hopeless at times. It's depressingly empty. What does the gospel say to you today? The gospel says to you that God's grace is for the desolate. That is a, that is a principle of the gospel, dear friends, that God's grace is for the desolate. That's the first application. If God has a word to the desolate, well, in this passage, he also has a, a word to those who, who would who would place themselves under the law. What, what is God's word to those who would 
place themselves under the law as a means of obtaining and maintaining right standing with God. It, it's, a, it's a very sobering word, dear friends. If, if there's anyone trying to be right with God through the law, if there's anyone trying to be right with God according to the flesh, anyone trying to be right by their best human efforts, anyone ripping the law out of the context of grace, and if there's anyone here trying to march in step with drummer law, what does God have to say to you? It's, it's there in verse 30. What does scripture say? What does God say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman. Hear what that's saying. God isn't unclear about it. You you will not be an heir. You, You will not be accepted. And after a lifetime of effort, after a lifetime of trying to march in step with the beat of law, after a lifetime of slavery, you will be cast out, Scripture says, unless you trust in Christ. Third application Paul, Paul makes here, it's in verse 29. If I can put it this way, it has to do with how Ishmael's treat Isaac's. It says, just as, just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Paul is still thinking allegorically, so follow, follow what Paul is saying. Ishmael represents legalism legalistic religion. He represents the point of view that says, follow these rules, keep these regulations, observe these things, and and you will be in a right relationship with God. And keep it up, because if you want to maintain that right relationship with God, you you have to do that. Otherwise, the grace of God for you, the love of God for you is, is in doubt. And what Paul is saying here is, he's saying that legalists are always persecutors. People who seek acceptance with God by their own obedience will always persecute those who enjoy full acceptance with God by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Because legalists are not happy with imposing legal demands and religious regulations upon themselves. They want you to observe those demands too. And if you don't, Persecution is coming. That's what Paul is saying here. They want, they want you to be tied up with touch not and taste not and handle not. Man-made laws made up in order to secure a right standing with God through human means. But, but Paul says, listen to him. If you are a child of the free woman, you are free. Follow the allegory when when you're a child of the free woman, you are free. You are free from the laws of man. You are free from laws that do not belong. You are free from trying to earn it because Jesus Christ has already earned it for you. This is why in the opening of the next chapter, Paul gets to this great summary verse of the whole book of Galatians. For, For freedom Christ has set you free. Therefore, don't don't submit yourself once again to a yoke of slavery. Stand firm against legalism because you are free in Christ. That's the third application. And then just one more here. And it's a reminder. It's a reminder 
we need over and over and over again. And the reminder is for those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you trust in Christ, you are a child of the free woman and a citizen of the Jerusalem above, which is free. And that's the reality that defines your life. That is the the reality that determines your life both here and for all eternity. Because what God has done in Christ is save all who put their trust in him. He's accepted them. He's adopted them. Listen to how Martin Luther puts this. This is from his commentary on Galatians. Those who try to achieve the status of sons and heirs by the righteousness of the law or by their own righteousness are slaves who will never receive the inheritance even though they work themselves to death with their great effort. For they are trying, contrary to the will of God, to achieve their own by their own works, what God wants to grant to believers by the sheer grace of God for Christ's sake. And so if we are working to earn the status of son or citizen, Paul is saying we're living like slaves, not sons, not free children. And if we want to be free, this passage says all we need to do is look afresh to Jesus Christ and remember everything he has done for us, everything he is for us, and everything he's doing in us by his spirit through the gospel. Maybe some of you, maybe some of you have tasted the freedom of knowing Jesus Christ. But you're returning to slavery. You're in the process. You're, you're, you're heading to bondage. You've trusted in Jesus Christ, but your relationship to God has turned into this endless cycle of guilt and confession and trying to make up for it, to feel better about yourself. And here, my friends, is what this passage reminds us of. Christ has already purchased your freedom. Christ has already purchased your liberty. He's redeemed you out of slavery and that way of life, and he has made you a son and a citizen of the Jerusalem above. You you already have in your possession your citizenship documents. That's how secure this is. So there there are no slaves in that glorious city. Only, only children and heirs. And so this passage, dear friends, it's, it's telling us, remember that you are, you are not a child of the slave woman. You are a child of the free woman. You are not a citizen of a city in bondage. You are a citizen of a city that is eternally free. Remember the freedom. Remember the emancipation, the liberty of the children of, of God. Some of you, I'm sure, have traveled to New York to see that famous statue erected in the 19th century. And it's become, you know, it's one of the great symbols of the world. And she's called liberty. That's what Christ has purchased for you, beloved. That's what he died for, to give to you. And so the question is, why? Why why would you ever want to go back? Why would you ever want to go back into bondage? These are the shackles that Satan wants to put on you, but this passage is remember who you are in Christ, a child of the free woman, a citizen of the Jerusalem above, which is free. That is your status in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the freedom of the gospel, for Christ who 
purchased our freedom and emancipated us from the shackles of slavery. We are your children and we rejoice in it. We are heirs and we long for it and wait for it. We are forgiven and our hearts are so filled with wonder that they feel at times like they are going to burst for your love and kindness to us in Jesus Christ. For all that you've done for us, we give you thanks and praise and we pray that everyone here today would know the reality of what it means to be a child of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.